today on Growth Mindset University. Everyone talks about the light side of working remote, which is you get the freedom and flexibility to work when, where, and how you want. People don't talk about the dark side, the loneliness and isolation you get from not having human contact. You're listening to Growth Mindset University, educating tomorrow's leaders with lessons from today's entrepreneurial elite. It's a progressive new age of business we find ourselves in, and we'll help you find the success you seek by listening to today's industry professionals and thought leaders teach us the lessons we should have learned in school but didn't. Now, please welcome your host, Jordan Paris. My guest today is Dan Shaw-Bell. Dan is a New York Times bestselling author and the managing partner of Workplace Intelligence. He's the bestselling author of three career books, Back to Human, Promote Yourself, and Me 2.0. Shaw-Bell is also the host of the Five Questions with Dan Shaw-Bell podcast, where he interviews world-class humans like Richard Branson, Rachel Ray, Gary Vaynerchuk, and Jay Shetty. Dan Welcome to Growth Mindset University. So happy to be here with you. Thanks for having me on. Sure. So people can find you when they hear something today and get curious. DanShawBell.com. S-C-H-A-W-B-E-L. Um, I hope you appreciate I uh, I pronounce your last name correctly. A lot of podcast hosts do not pronounce it correctly. Did you look it up beforehand? <laughs> As I did, just, you pl- did you I listen to one you, of my episodes? <laughs> I heard you on another podcast correcting someone. <laughs> yeah, I actually, that's, that's part of what I do before I interview people now is I'll go to like YouTube or I'll go to a podcast and, mm. and listen to how they say it. Because I made a big yeah. mistake once. Oh, I said, really? With Guy. So I said Guy, guy Pieri. Oh, no, Guy, guy Pieri. Pieri. And it's Guy Pieri. Oh, wow. And so I had to redo that, that I feel introduction. Like, yeah, I feel like nobody knows that. Though, so, anyway, oh, they make you know it. if you say it wrong and it's public, and uh-huh. yeah, they'll they'll let you know. <laughs> People can uh, Dan can they can also find you on on LinkedIn. You have a newsletter there, which is pretty cool. Uh, I know not many people have that feature. Um, Instagram uh, at Dan Shaw Bell. It's at Dan Shaw Bell on just about every platform. Twitter, you'll see him right there. Five questions. The podcast. I want I want to start this off with. Um, you know, I really relate to you in that I heard you speaking one time that, uh, actually multiple times I've heard you talk about this, that, you know, being bullied in school, how that affected you and how your 20s was just really like an overcompensation and need to almost like, in my, in the way I view it is like proving people wrong. Um, Cause I had a very similar it's actually, Experience. I think it was proving myself worthy. Mm. Yes. So because my self-confidence was beaten down so bad for so long, it was really the process of gaining the self-confidence by proving something to myself. And part of that was also proving it to other people, but it was more internal than external because uh, I needed to find meaning and purpose that I never really had. Well, why don't I, I have some follow-up questions just because I, I think I'm going through the same thing you're going through as a 22 year old that um, tell us about that experience and then, you know, what it led to in, in your twenties. Yeah. I think my twenties was about self-discovery, at least in my early twenties. That's why I was early into blogging in 2006. I would write what, at least one post per day after work and it was kind of an outlet for me, not only a creative outlet, but just to, just to like have something to do. Right. And so I think that I worked myself into oblivion in my early twenties because of a, of this mindset that if I wanted to have a good future, I had to sacrifice today. Right. So it was always that type of mantra. I, I actually, in reflecting in my whole life over the past several weeks, I think a lot of what I've developed in, in terms of self-motivation has to do with mantras. Like in my first job, when I graduated, my mantra was um, set yourself up for success. And I was doing that in college too. And, and what I mean by set yourself up for success is, let's say you have you know, exam, an exam next Tuesday, mm-hmm. and you have a whole week to study, 
I'll take that whole week to study, whereas a lot of my classmates will cram the night before. So I set myself up for success because that final night, I don't have to cram. It's just I quickly review everything that I was, I was practicing and, and uh, trying to memorize over the past week. Sure. Same thing in the workplace. If I knew I had a deadline of the end of the month for a project, the project would already have been done the first week. Why? Because it gives me a, it would give me a three week, uh, buffer where I could get more feedback and where I would, wouldn't feel as stressed, therefore opening up more time to focus on other things and expanding my role at work. Sort of like doing the hard things today to make your life a little bit easier tomorrow or a week from now or a month from now. And it ended up panning out. So I, I worked over 100 hours per week in my early 20s. And now I don't work as hard, but I'm doing more of what I want to do. Now, this is how I thought. You know, you can get advice from many different people about, you know, do work you love and, and sacrifice now for the future. But when you experience it, you know, you really buy into it, right? And so now, now I'm very strategic when it comes to what I do, but I, but when I was younger, I just wanted to do everything because my best advice is do as much as you can as young as possible because that's how you become more self-aware. How are you supposed to know if you like basketball if you don't play basketball? How are you supposed to know if you're a good writer if you don't write often? Like, you don't know what you're capable of unless you try. And so I think the best thing, my one of the best things that my parents did for me when I was really young, like teenager or younger was they let me try everything. Like I was doing ice skating. I was doing, the only thing I didn't do was skiing. <laughs> I think they were just afraid. I was, I'm an only child. I think they were afraid that I was going to hurt myself. Who knows? Right. But I think that having all of those experiences, trying different things can help you figure out what you're good at, what you're not, what you like, what you don't from a, from a job or entrepreneur perspective. Like, do you want to manage a team? Do you want to go solo? Do you want to raise capital? Like, do you want to, what industry do you want to work in? You, you could answer a lot of these questions by experiencing them. And I think that everyone should at least give themselves a chance to experience as much as possible because then they'll know what they're capable of and where they want to, uh, you know, what, what they want to do on their journey. Absolutely. Hey, I, uh, I actually forgot something. Your book, People should get it. I got it, I got it right in front of me. Back to Human is uh, it's been on Amazon, been on Amazon for a while. Um, I know hardback, which is, which is what I have, but the paperback is is coming out March tenth, which a uh, day after this is going to be released. So you can get you can get Back to Human, and, and we are going to talk about that book today a little bit later. But but first, I um you know I want to talk about interviewing next because. Uh, I just love interviewing. I, I think it's an art. Um, it's something that I continually work to get better at. Sometimes I, I still perform really poorly. Um, other times, like this morning when I was talking with Mark Metry, our friend, uh, it was just one of the best ever. Part of it's because I, you know, I know him so well now. And, you know, I've had him on the show multiple times. But I want to start like from the beginning. I know you don't write, it doesn't look like you write for Forbes anymore. And you can correct me if you're wrong, but how do you. I did a. For yeah. seven years. Okay. Well, how, how did you get, how, like, how does one even get that opportunity to, to write for Forbes? You know, everything takes time. So it started off as me writing for my own blog back in 2006, 2007, and then reaching out and writing articles for the American Marketing Association. That was my first big one. And then the, and then Brain Week magazine that took six months to get published. And then I kept reaching out and reaching out and reaching out and, you know, started writing for Business Week. And then I wrote for Mashable. And then I think it then was Forbes and then CNBC and basically all the business media outlets. I had a column with Time. Um, I've had a lot of columns actually, but yeah, it all started off with me writing for my own blog and then not being afraid to reach out and pitch ideas because you will get rejected a lot. I still get rejected all the time. Um, and uh, uh, what do you like pitching ideas? You just give like title ideas or, but you also want to be the right person for what you're writing for. Like if you want to get a book published, one of the things that publishers are looking for is, are you the right person to write that book? Same with articles. So 
if you want to write an article on, you know, how colleges are going to change in the next 10 years, you're in a better position to write that article than, you know, if you want to write an article on, you know, global warming and you don't know much about that topic. Sure. Yeah. That, and that's a person. So you want your, you want too. your background to reflect what you're writing. That's really important. And then you want to do research to see who is, what publications are covering that topic mm-hmm. and who the editors are for those publications. Then you come up with a pitch. I usually do a headline and three to five sentence paragraph that okay. explains what the article is and why it's relevant and maybe use some research as part of it. And then I pitch and 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 you have to be willing to send it out to 30 to 50 journalists or editors and maybe you get, you get rejected 50, like 50 out what? of 50 times. You might be rejected. You might not, you just don't know. So you just got to keep going. Do you use like a, a tool like hunter.io to get their emails or something or? No, no, no. I just, I just guess it. And then if it comes <laughs> back, I just keep going. Nice. No, it ha- it happens very quickly. So if I have the idea, I have to be willing to commit to getting rejected a lot. It's like I was telling someone the other day, if I write a book, I'm not just committing to writing the book and getting it published. I'm also committing to, you know, suffering from anxiety and depression at the same time because mm-hmm. I, because I've been th- I've written 3 books that I know what's happened to me during that process. So, so you have to know what you're signing up for. Sure. And the only way to do that is through experience. So I didn't know that it was going to, you know, take 50 pitches before I got an article placed until I did the 50 pitches. Now, listening to this podcast, people know that, you know, it's not like the first email you send is going to turn into a byline in some magazine. You have to just hmm. pitch and pitch and pitch it. And, and you didn't even get Forbes right away. You're, you're working it. You're, you're, I didn't get Forbes lower. until. Yeah. 2010, I believe. Yeah. And, but you just leverage like one publication to like write for the next and then That's so it. on and so on. That's everything in life though. Everything. Same with interviewing. Uh, you know, I've interviewed the president of the United States. I've interviewed all types of people. But I, when I was first starting out, I was interviewing professors, people you've never heard of before. Mm. So this goes with everything. I was doing smaller research studies seven years ago, and now I'm doing these massive global studies where I'm interviewing, you know, executives and employees and managers in the UAE and Singapore and Australia and all around the world, right? And, you know, great things have small beginnings. Big things have small beginnings, meaning that you have to start small until you get to do bigger things. And it's better that way. And the best example I give is with TV. I'm very happy that I did local TV before I did national TV, because if I went directly from never being on TV to the Today Show, I would have probably failed because I wasn't. I wouldn't be ready for that. I didn't. I wouldn't know what that's like. Like standing in the, you know, being in the green room and and the anticipation, mm-hmm. and then going on set, and then you know you have to wait and you get cued, and then you go on. And you could you have to talk in sound bites. Like <laughs> you like talk in sound. It's much better. <laughs> to do the local TV first because yeah. it prepares you. So it sounds exciting. Like this to me is I'm very anti-entitlement because I've had to work myself up across all aspects of what I do. You you don't want to be entitled because if you try and skip steps, like if you try and go from being the intern to the CEO, you're going to fail as the CEO. So I think it's really important to have a really strong foundation that you can you can grow on because when you do that, then you're more likely to be successful in those those bigger roles that you you encounter and you pursue. Yeah, I can relate that to speaking too. If I yeah. you know just went if if this if this TED talk that Mark and I were given in March uh, are given in March, if that was like our first speaking engagement, I mean, I I'd be like reading off my my phone. I, I was the worst public speaker ever. I remember I was dude. I was in public speaking class freshman year of college and. All we had to do was talk for a minute about ourselves, introduce ourselves. And I couldn't, I, I was trembling. My voice was, my voice was trembling. I, 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 I couldn't get out words. <laughs> it was, it was the most horrifying, embarrassing experience ever. And you know, I, I don't even know what my first speaking opportunity was, but I, um, you know, I started speaking in classrooms and universities and, 
and just worked my way up. And, and now, um, I think that I'm much better prepared for a Ted talk. If I went just to the Ted talk, it would have been, um, I would have blew it for sure. So I, I, I agree with you there. Well, and that's another good point you're mentioning is speaking. Like I'm an introvert. My first speech was sophomore year of high school. I got sick and threw up the night before I just speak about affirmative action the next morning to 30 students. And then just, you know, years and years and years of, you know, practicing and speaking about topics that I was passionate about and then getting help. And over the past two years, actually, I've hired speaking coaches. Now I've spoken at about 180 conferences. But even my first three years of speaking, I paid my own expenses. I didn't make a mm. dollar. And then, then I got an opportunity paid opportunity and I gave a cut of that opportunity to a speaking bureau and that launched my speaking career. So I was, I was willing to be in this for the long game. And I think one thing to the next again, I think the key is once you know what you want to do long-term or have at least some idea, you know, the profession you want to be in the type, the nature of work you want to do, the industry you want to be in, then it's easier to make short-term decisions and you make better short-term decisions. So you know, if I'm invited to speak for free even now to heads of HR at a local conference, I'm more likely to say yes than someone else because I want to be in this industry for the rest of my life. And I'm 36 and I've been doing this for over 10 years. There's something special about being in an industry for a long period of time. Yeah. For instance, I've been on different, uh, you know, sales calls the past few weeks and they'll say, Oh, Dan, I remember back in the day when you used to write about personal branding. I'm like, exactly. Mm -hmm. That is to me is validation of, you know, dedicate yourself to an industry because eventually people will know about you if you do the right things. And then that will cut down on the sales cycle. So this, the sales cycle for me is much, much uh, shorter than it would be five to 10 years ago because of the awareness and the, value I've brought to the industry over 50 research studies, yeah. thousands of articles, like thousands of interviews, so much content, right? Podcasts. I mean, yeah. but it's, it, it all accumulates over time and compounds because I've been focused on the workplace and making people's lives better at work. That has really elevated me in the industry and thus year over year, Certain things get easier, like the sales cycle, whereas, you know, other things get harder because I continue to want to challenge myself. And I think that's the biggest myth of success is that your life gets easier. In fact, mm. no, what made you successful is your ambition. And if you're continuing to be ambitious, then the challenges get greater. And it's not like there's more spots at the top. So it actually gets harder, not easier. Plus, there's a lot of pressure. So if you see someone really famous, there's so much pressure on them to make their movie, you know, let's say they're in a Disney movie, to have that Disney movie be a billion dollars in ticket sales. And if it's not, they're viewed as a loser. And then they, you know, that could hurt their mental health. Like, well, look at people Tucker don't Max. see that. Look at, he, he had the movie made about him and he went into like depression for four years because it didn't do a billion dollars. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's true. Similar. It's And you become a bigger target too. So there's pros and cons with wherever you are in life. But my philosophy is if I can improve the workplace and make it more human and uh, make leaders create a workplace that people actually want to be part of and, you know, are happy and have their health and well-being taken care of, then their entire life improves because we spend over a third of our lives working. That's my philosophy. And in order to do that, when I was in my early 20s, I, I figured through experience that, hey, it's not just about championing the worker through books and courses that I have and, and helping them succeed in the new world of work, but it's also advising companies so that they improve their workplaces so that people can succeed in them. It's a two-way street, just like hiring, right? Like both parties have to want to work with each other. If you want to create a, a great workplace where people 
stay longer, are more productive or happier and have a better life overall, then you have to do both. Absolutely. We're going to get there. We're going to get to back to humans soon. But uh, I'm, I'm curious. I know when I was interviewed for Forbes, a column, someone's column, yeah, I just, uh, they just gave me the questions. Um, and I would, you know, and I typed them into a, a Google doc. How do you, how did you used to conduct your interviews? Do you do it on the phone? Do you, do you give the questions and they answer it in a doc? It's all over the place. <laughs> it really is. You really, know, because you the I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with people at all levels, you know, in different industries and have, that have different needs and different gatekeepers around them. So it's all, you know, I've done it. I've done it all. It's been you, almost 2,200 interviews. It's, it's all over the place. I've done a lot more in person the past year and a half to two years than I've ever done. Uh, I think it, it helps being in New York or maybe in any city just because you have access. So, you know, I'm, I interview people in New York because they live here. So it's easier to organize that. Whereas if I was in Alabama somewhere, I wouldn't be able to have that type of access and thus the content wouldn't be the same. But I find that when I record remotely, like we're doing right now, the quality of sound is better. So, so I, I do like that. Whereas in person, you do have the video and there's a stronger connection that you can make with the person you're interviewing, but usually the sound quality is not as high. Well, Dan, it depends on the setup. (laughs) It depends on the setup, man. Like I, I use, I have these, I got a Zoom H5 recorder. I got two lav mics that, you know, clip on microphones to plug into there. And, uh, and we put them on and it, the, the sound quality when I do in-person interviews, just impeccable. It's, it's different if like, and I don't know if this is your setup, but like, if you just put like a blue Yeti microphone in between two people, which I, you know, I did like early on, um, then yes, it doesn't, you know, it really doesn't sound that good um but it is it is a little bit more work to do it in person um more time consuming and then just the setup is uh really frustrating sometimes if you don't have someone helping you so i feel you uh especially like when i'm using a a software like we're using squadcast it sounds like since it records locally it sounds like we're in uh the same room a lot of the time a lot of these interviews some people ask me like you know was this interview in person jordan and i'm like no it wasn't and that's like the biggest compliment, you know. That's awesome. Yeah. So, how would you um, how would you prepare for your interviews, Dan? The like best method? way the best way I prepare now is I look at all the other interviews they've done, and you listen to them. I listen to them to get a sense of how they act and how they respond to different questions, and who's asked what questions to them, and just get a feel of that. You know, especially if I'm going to do an in-person one, I want to go in kind of knowing the result I'm going to get. Do you write, do you write stuff down? I write about 10 to 15 questions down. And then when I'm in the interview, I'm at least asking about half of them and then, and then improving the rest. Yeah. So I want, I, there's a cross between me wanting to get some questions out there, but also seeing how they're going to respond and where it can go. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think it's best. The best interviews are when, um, the first question lasts the entire episode, the entire interview. Uh, you know, I have my list of questions, but I think the goal is to get so in flow that, you know, you just throw it out. Would you, uh, would you concur or, or is that, I mean, is I that, depends, that's for me. That's depends for me. on the podcast. Yeah. Sure. Mine's different because it's very short. Yeah. So I have to nail the, each question, you know, each question I spent a ton of time like being oh, like, yeah, is five this questions. Deep? what are the, if I have five questions, how can I, how can I, I try and do two things. I want to extract the best of what this person has to offer based on their experiences and their current role. And I want to also humanize them too, just so that mm. people listening don't think like, oh, this person is, you know, Superman or Wonder Woman, that this right. this is, can actually be a How do you? That's all I'm doing. Yeah. Those, those are my objectives. Yeah, I do that too. Um, I even, 
<laughs> I even literally I said that exact phrase to Grant uh, to Grant Cardone. I was like, I was like, I, before I, I asked this one question, uh, I was like, all right, I want to I want to humanize you here. We were talking about serious stuff for like fifty minutes, and then I then I wanted to talk about something less serious. Uh, and and the way I d- I do that sometimes I I say, Dan, what do you do for fun? You know, after all this serious stuff, I, like, what do you do for fun? Do you do you have a, a specific like go to question that uh, that humanizes them? How how do you humanize your interviewees? I think it comes down to the questions overall. You know, the the last question is the fifth question is what is your best piece of career advice? And I've, I've done that for like twelve years, so I've kept that consistent. You know, I was, I've always dreamed about in the future writing a book called My Best Advice and then mm. collectively assimilating all of those responses. Um, but for the other four questions, it's really diving deep into their story, where they come from, their perspectives, and thinking about what can I ask in a, in, a, in a, maybe a new way that brings out aspects of who they are that, that uh, I want to tap into because I think they'll resonate with people. Sure. It's a, it's a process, right? And I'm actually, it's the process isn't that long, like, because I've had to come up with five questions so many times that it's like, it happens maybe quicker for me because I'm just so used to it. And there's, you know, when you've interviewed thousands of people, you draw connections. Like for instance, uh, today I interviewed the editor in chief of Cosmopolitan magazine and I've interviewed her predecessors before. Ah. So I bring that right back in. I'm like, okay, how are you going to do things different? What what mark are you going to are you going to leave on the magazine's history? Um, to, you know that and differentiate yourself from the last two editors in chief. So I I now after interviewing so many people, I can make new connections whereas I couldn't before. Sure, I so I've gotten this I gotten this question a couple times. Uh, and I, I hate when I get this question, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to see if you hate it as much. Is there a common theme? You know, you mentioned thousands of interviews. There's, is there a common theme, uh, maybe a through line through all these interviews? I do get this a lot. Hmm. It's a hard question I think there's to multiple through lines. I think people generally believe that they are where they are because they follow their passion. Whether that's true or not, or, you know, if you believe in, you know, what Cal Newport says is, you know, follow your strengths, not your passion. Or Mark Cuban says, follow your energy, not your passion. That's what they believe is the reason why they're successful. Like, yeah, Suzanne Summers, my last podcast episode, that's it. That's what she said. So that's very common. Um, what's more interesting though is something that the things that are not common actually and the two ones that stand out one is what seth goaded and michael lewis both said oh, yeah. they said my best advi- my best advice is to not to listen not to listen to other people's best advice meaning that advice could be good for that person but not you yeah. Advice isn't universally applicable to everyone in every situation at every point in their life. I think it's good to take advice only from people who have what you want or, you know what I mean? But I, I think what they're saying is there's so many variables. Mm, so even if they uh, have what yeah, you want, true. like how old are they? Do they have a son or a daughter? Like there's so, where do they live? What do they have access to? So that's, I think that's what they were, they were getting right. to. And then the other one that I thought was very cool was David Brooks in one of my earlier episodes. He said something that made perfect sense to me, but no one's ever said it. He said that his best advice is to create identity capital. So identity capital is, the. I'll just give you an example and you'll understand. So Jay Shetty was a former monk for three years. That is identity capital. How many former monks do you know? For me, it's zero. zero. It's the only yeah. one I know. And he can talk about being a former monk or what life was like as a monk for the rest of his life in every job interview and every conversation. Mm. That's identity capital because once you enter that conversation, once you enter the interview, once you're you know, in a sales meeting, whatever situation you're in, giving a presentation, you can always leverage that 
and people are going to find it interesting. So what's your identity capital? To me, that's fascinating. It, yeah. it, it makes so much sense because sales and life and everything we do is about conversations. And so if you have something that's very, very unique to you and rare, then it's always going to be to your benefit. I agree. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. And that's dude. why it's almost like, you know, if you write a book or you do anything, you know, that's unique, you can leverage it forever. It's not like if you're an author at age 30, you can't say you're an author at age 70. So I think right. about that a lot. I'm like, huh, you mean, you know, having done over 50 research studies, when I'm 60, I can still say I did that. Like you can always point to things that you've done. Mm. You know, your life is a, you know, portfolio of projects and experiences and you get to choose what to leverage when in what situation and you know that's why i think i think people have to be thoughtful about that right like if i was younger i i don't know if i'd be a monk but i maybe i would maybe if i was you know 22 or a teenager or something i would have done something that that's out of the ordinary if i had that advice yeah yeah like I traveling to you know 50 countries before uh -huh. 20 or 30 years old that's interesting one of the things that i'm uh it's not official yet but um pretty much i i really want to make this happen uh you know i submitted my application and and everything but uh i might i might be um going to volunteer as a teacher in israel for the 2021 school year i think that would be That'd be a really cool thing to talk about with a whole, it would come with a whole host of stories over those 10 months that I'm there. I think it'd be the experience of a lifetime. So I 100% agree. Yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely that, leaning towards But that, that would be identity capital. How many yeah. people you know who've done that? There's people who've done it, especially people I've met in New York, but it's not that common. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And even just if you have a podcast and you've done 300 episodes, that's still mm -hmm. unique. So think about what's, unique that you've done or pl are planning to do because then if you're at a mixer networking event speaking you can draw from it yeah i mean podcasts even like you know we think it looks like everyone and their mother is starting a podcast but the joke is do you want to be on my podcast <laughs> yeah i the onion put out an article like oh, i gotta uh, read this 30 million 30 million Americans still looking for guests on their podcast this week <laughs> is, is like the headline. That's awesome. But, yeah. But I mean, really, there's like, I don't know. There's like, if we're being really generous, there's a million podcasts out there and not even half of them are active uh, and not even, not all of them are in the United States either. So like, do you consider like the, you know, the, the population of the United States, I don't know, 300 million. I'm just guessing here. Uh, like math would it's, say, I like, think it's about three hundred sixty million. Yeah. Okay. So even if there were a million podcasts that were all in the United States, it would only be like one out of three hundred sixty people that that have that common experience, that common identity capital. So it is a unique experience, and I and I say that because there are a lot of podcasters that listen to this show. So I want to talk about back to human Dan. Why this book? Why now? There's a few different reasons. The first one is each book I've written helps people get to the next phase of their career. So the vision is to help people across their entire career journey from student to CEO. Um, even though I believe that you're a student for life, let's just say Absolutely. from college to CEO. <laughs> uh, so my first book, Me 2.0, was College to First Job. How do you get your first job? It's also the first book on how to use social media to build your personal brand back in uh, 2009, which is, feels like such a long time ago, 11 years. Wow. Uh, the second book was Promote Yourself. So, you know, once you have a job, how do you get ahead at that job? And then the third book, Back to Human, is a leadership book, right? Now you're a leader. How do you create connections in an age in which people are relying so much on technology and it's isolated them and made them feel lonely. So as a young leader myself, as somebody who works from home and often feels pretty isolated and alone, uh, this clearly was a the right book at the right time for me. And every book actually is more human. So the first book had a big emphasis on technology and social media. 
the second book had 40 pages dedicated to soft skills because the study I led in partnership with American Express, we found that that's what managers are looking for when promoting. So double down on your soft skills. And even more so today, you know, we're in 2020, 2020 and beyond is, you know, with every, all these technical skills that are going to be automated, the future is about soft skills. Interacting with people, I think, is the most important. And then back to human, of course, is really about what does it mean to be human in the age of technology, where everyone's looking down at their phone and they're physically in your presence, but not they're not mentally, emotionally, or spiritually because they're, they're who's not there. connected. Exactly. And you see this all the time wherever you go, right? I've been seeing it. You know, in New York, there's just in Manhattan, there's 1.6 million people. There's 8.6 million in the greater New York area. You know, whether you're walking down the street in a subway, in a co-working space, you can be around so many people, but no one at the same time, right? Because they're there, but they're not actually there. Uh, I feel like people use it as a, as a crutch too, to avoid awkward situations. Like I'm walking past someone. I don't want to make eye contact with them. Eye contact with them. It's weird. Let me pull out my phone. Um, you know, I'm sitting, I'm sitting in a waiting room with people. Like I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to talk to people. I'll just pull out my phone. Um, there's just so many situations. I know those aren't good examples, but there's so many situations I feel like where we're just missing out on human connection and potential relationships because it's the comfortable thing to do, the easy thing to do in the moment. Students waiting outside a class, waiting for their professor to get there. You should see it, dude. They're all on their phones, not talking to each other. These are 21, 22-year-old or 18 to 22-year-old uh, people that have so much in common that uh, it's we, like we need to take notes from France. So in France, they have the right to disconnect, which means you can't email or message employees outside of office hours or you get fined millions of dollars. <laughs> and some company based, I think in the UK that had employees in France was fined millions of dollars. Like it actually happened. And then the other thing they did last year was they banned phones in schools. Oh, that's beautiful. And there's actually research that shows that when students use phones during class time, they lose like a half a grade or something yes. like that. Even um, there, I don't know the study offhand, but like I saw stuff a while ago that even if the phone is on the desk, not even being used, it results in a lower grade. I don't know by how much, but I thought that was interesting too. Just the presence of it is affecting us. I like to go places without my phone. I, when I go to the, I go to the gym in the morning. Uh, I work out at F45, and um, and I I never take my phone there. So um, I don't know. I just try to like do at least one thing every day that doesn't um, involve my phone. I think it's I don't know. I think it's a healthy thing to do. Yeah. And the, <laughs> the other reason why I wrote the book is I was interviewed for a documentary that'll be out later this year called The Revolution Generation. It's like a portrait of our generation. And during the interview for two and a half hours, I was in California and I was asked, what are the biggest issues we have as a generation? And I started rattling off the student loan debt crisis and yes. inequality oh and global warming and world war. And then I stopped for a second and in my head, I'm like, but what are people facing on a daily basis? And it was isolation and loneliness, uh, partially due because of people being addicted to technology. And it's our fault and not our fault. And what I mean by that is, well, we have a choice whether to use the technology or not, correct? I mean, you could just put your phone down and walk to another room. You could. Good. But it's also technology companies' fault because they make their devices addictive so that you spend more time on them and they make more money. So it's both it's it's both the technology company's fault, they they should be to blame, but it's also our fault as well. You know, it'll be really I'm just imagining this right now. A panel discussion with you, Nir Ayal, you know yeah. Nir, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And Mark Metry. And do you know Catherine Price? She wrote a book called How to Break Up with Your Phone. No, I don't I haven't heard of her, but I know Nir very well. 
Yeah, the, those I, that would be an that'd be a really fun panel discussion. Maybe I'll organize that. <laughs> but yeah, Nears Nears Sharp too. I interviewed him a while ago for his uh, not hooked, but his most recent book, Indistractable. So it's awesome. How how do we get back to human, Dan? Well, in the workplace, I think it's about not. It's not about completely dropping technology. First off, I'm not here to say let's get rid of technology. That's not possible. And we're going to have more and more technology in our lives as we progress in our culture and in the workplace. I think it's about when and where you're using the technology, right? It's about having meaning behind the use and not just always using it. For instance, the most simplest example is use technology as a bridge to more human interaction instead of letting it be a barrier between you and those you're trying to build a relationship with. Meaning that use the technology to organize, you know, a date or a meeting so that people know where to go and when. But once you're there in that physical location, yeah. don't use the technology. Yeah. I like no phones on the dinner table. I tell my family that when I'm with them. Yeah, no. And the thing is, even if the phone, so like, let's say you're sitting down and the phone is like five feet from you, it still messes with you because you're yeah. thinking about it. If it's in the same room, you're thinking about it. Mm. Yeah. Even in the same room. That's a, yeah, that's a good, yeah. Because I mean, you're, you're literally, you'll, you'll notice, try and do it. I swear. <laughs> sit on the, sit in the ki- kitchen table next time with your, with your friends or family and then put your phone like, three feet from you or four feet and you'll say your behavior you'll you'll look at your phone you'll you'll you might have some anxiety too Mm. i feel like our phones are like these magnets that attract us that pull us (laughs) like if we put it in another room it's gonna pull us over there (laughs) i feel like uh there there could be a good uh, could be a good cartoon that could be made out of that i don't know i'm thinking in my head like magnet i don't know i'm not a cartoonist but um so you talk about the, the the dark side of of working from home. There's a dark side. What is that? So this is a big topic, and probably the biggest thing I uncovered while researching for the book that I'm proud of. Everyone talks about the light side of working remote and the promise of working remote, which is you get the freedom and flexibility to work when, where, and how you want. Yeah. People don't talk about the dark side the loneliness and isolation you get from not having the human contact. And so what the book reveals is just that, right? It's, um, you know, two thirds of the global workforce works, uh, sorry, a third of the global workforce works remote, at least often, yet two thirds are disengaged. And what we found was that if you work remote, you're much less likely to want to long-term create your company. Meaning that, if you're working remote full time and you're not getting the human contact, you have less of a anchor in the company. You're less connected in, in uh, to the company, and therefore you're less likely to stay with the company long term. But if you have if you have good connections in the company and you're there in person, you're getting to know people and you're seen and heard, you're much more likely to stay there if you're having a good experience. Well, I think a lot of people are shifting to this. Um, you know, freelance gig economy where a lot of people are working from home. So if that's you, and that's me, it's been me for years working from home. And there are times when I will go a period of a few days where I don't make social plans and uh, I suffer. Like it, it actually sucks. If I'm, you know, making plans using technology as a bridge not a barrier, as you would say, to make these plans, to get in front of people, to get some real FaceTime, then um, working from home is awesome if I have that, if I have that balance. Um, but it's really easy to fall into um, uh, isolation and, and, lo- and feeling really just profoundly lonely. Is there, do you have any antidotes to that? To make, the dark side of working from home. Yeah, brighter. I, my strategy is if we believe and tell ourselves that we live and die by our calendars, and if it's not on our calendar, it doesn't exist. We have to construct our calendars so it covers not just our work lives but our personal lives. As in, 
you know, instead of just putting a business meeting, put a meeting to talk to someone on the phone or to grab coffee or lunch or dinner. And so we need to make our calendars reflective of our whole lives, not just work. So I'll make a connection for listeners here to who heard the episode with Nir Ayal back on uh, September 10th. Forget what episode number that was, but Nir calls this schedule syncing. You know, the things that you say you value, like, you know, we value relationships and human connection, but does your calendar reflect that? And uh, I think that's a lot of what you're saying too, right, Dan? Yeah, it's about intention. That's what it really comes down to. I put everything in my calendar. I I put hanging out with people. uh, (laughs) Like, I'll put, like, uh, you know, I go to this kava bar sometimes. I don't know if you know what kava is, but that's irrelevant. Yeah, well, I know kava, like, oh yeah, fast casual place. Kava, no, kava is a root that gives you, um, I mean, it's perfectly legal, um, but it gives you this slight head high. Um, so it's this like root that they, they mix it in drinks and, um, and it's a cool place. It's a really cool place. Um, so I have like Kava with W Sav, uh, my friend Savannah, like in my, in my calendar, uh, pool with Patrick, you know? Yeah, I'll, no, I'll I do the same thing stuff in there. It's interesting though. And I think this will change in the future, but you know, some of my friends are okay with me adding, you know, a calendar invite when it's personal, even though calendar <laughs> I don't, I don't are, send the invite. I don't send oh, it. Oh, you don't? Me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for yeah. Me. No, Some of us do it now, but it uh, still feels a little awkward. Yeah. I think that'll change. I think it's not going to matter in the future. Uh-huh. Because so, honestly, if it, if I send a calendar invite for a friend to, you know, hang out with me maybe four years ago, it would have been really weird. Super. But I think now... I, People care less. People because everyone's trying to maximize their time. Everyone's trying to, you know, uh, get this human interaction. Because regardless of how, all this technology that we have at our fingertips, we all need each other to survive. Like it, there's a reason yes. why um, solitary confinement is so terrible. Is because if you don't see and hear from someone for a very long time and you're trapped, uh, you just go insane. Yeah, and there's been many studies on that too. Yeah, and uh, I mean the worst, the worst combination in the world: depression and isolation. Uh, depression and isolation it amplifies and distorts just the whole experience. Makes you crazy. It's horrible. Uh, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But uh, are are you, Dan? Are you a natural introvert? Would you say? Definitely. People. So it's really interesting. So if you look at Brene Brown, Simon Sinek, and it's a lot of the big personalities. They're all introverts, but they're perceived as an extrovert yeah, because they're, they're on, on stage. Yeah. Exactly. But it's it's the introvert of them that got them on the stage, and then they're perceived as an extrovert, meaning that they got on stage because of their writing ability. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And then once they're, and that's a very introverted thing. Being a writer is very, yeah. you're alone, you're kind of doing your own thing. Uh-huh. And yet they're perceived as an extrovert. So I'm perceived as an extrovert, but I'm an introvert at heart. Well, I, like, my... I like smaller, intimate conversations and group dinners. Mm. Yeah, me too. I like those. I like like an intimate get together I'm, uh, and one on one stuff. I'm really good with that. Uh, uh, a big party, um, or like a you know a real crowded bar, I just uh, I crumble. But what is Dan as an introvert? Uh, curious. That was my my question in asking in in bringing that up is, you know, like what what would you say you, is your balance, um, you know, as far as spending time alone versus with other people? Do you have like an optimal balance that makes you? I think it's impossible. I, I think balance is just impossible, but. <laughs> I will say that that the research shows that you need to spend time with others and by yourself at the same time. Agreed. You need both. And yeah. so I think I need more time alone than others though. I think I do. Same. Yeah. So I don't I don't think it's even. You know, when people say balance, it, it almost is like 50-50, but I don't think it's 50-50 for anyone. You might be 48, is arbitrary. you know, 52, you know, it's, you know, work-life balance. I don't believe it. I, you know, in chapter one, I talk about work-life integration, yeah. uh, but I'm also, there's some bias there because I don't have a normal job. 
You know, some people work to live. Mm. You know, like uh, in Europe, they work to live. Here, we almost live to work, especially in New York. So it's interesting. It's it's cultural. It's based on where you live. It's based on your needs. It's it's based on the type of profession you're in. You know, you're an entrepreneur, you're a consultant, you work for a big company, small company. So I don't know. I don't, it's hard, it's, it's hard to have balance. For sure. Well, Dan, I got, uh, I've got two final questions. My, uh, I, I heard you on, uh, Chase Jarvis, the Chase Jarvis live show. And it was, uh, it was all, I forget if it was a year ago or if it was two years ago. I think it was a year ago. Year ago. It came out. Yeah. And he asked you what your screen time is and you didn't have the newest iOS installed. So you got out of the question. You didn't, they didn't get to see. (laughs) And I am just, I, he asked that question. I've asked that question to people before I asked it to near, I think. And I asked it to Catherine who wrote how to break up your phone. I need to know. I'm looking right now. (laughs) Yeah. When he asked that, I was so excited, but Oh, what a letdown. I was like, oh, I get to talk to him next week. It doesn't matter. Yeah, mine says three hours and 17 minutes. Hey, that's pretty good. I'm, uh, I usually hover around 350. So, oh, okay. That's, that's pretty good. It's hard, though. I, I spend a lot of time on my computer, too. So, but I mean, that's the nature of what we do. <laughs> yeah, it's the nature of working from home. It's another dark side to working from home, I think. Well, that's part of it. Yeah. It's, it's because part. the computer can't talk back. Yeah, exactly. You can't really be friends with a computer. <laughs> uh, if you're if you're out of your fucking mind, you can. Okay, okay, you can. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you and, put it like that. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm out of my fucking mind. So, Dan, this has been a, an excellent conversation. It's been a lot of fun. I love talking about this stuff. Got a double dose of it today with you and Mark Metry. You guys are coming out back to back episodes. Listeners, Mark's episode will be out next week on, I believe, uh, the 16th of March. It's a Monday. Uh, Dan, my final question is, if you could teach a course at a university, a course of your creation or otherwise, what would it be? It could be anything. We talked about a lot of things today, too. So I think there's two things that colleges lack, and I would teach a career course, a modern career course to help people get jobs and and have long-term career trajectories that they love and that they're good at. Um, but I think the other one, if you want to take it or someone else you want to know, is a personal finance course. So college is missing those two courses. If college, every college was required to offer both of those courses, it'd be game-changing. And the ROI from attending those schools would, would be much better. DanShawBell.com. Get the book. My friends, back to human. It's on Amazon. You can find Dan at Dan Bell everywhere. Dan, you're the man. Thank you very much. You got it. Thank you so much for having me on. We've reached the end of this episode of Growth Mindset University. For more keys to success and methods to inspire your entrepreneurial spirit, head to jordanparis.com slash course and enroll in our free course to elevate your podcast to the next level. Be sure to pass the show along to someone you know who will benefit from the lessons learned in each episode, and we'll catch you and them on the next episode of Growth Mindset University.